0: Hello, and welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. Oh, hi, it's Cindy Howes. I host this podcast that you're listening to. I want to tell you about ways you can stay in touch with us, because it's so nice to be in touch. The best way to do it is to join our email list at our website, basicfolk.com. You'll get our monthly newsletter and occasional friendly messages from your buds. You can also follow us on social media at Basic Folk Pod, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. If you'd like to financially support the podcast, I invite you to become a contributing member by making a gift at basicfolk.com/donate. If you give at least $5 a month or $60 for the entire year, you get access to our bonus content which is called Backstage. It's monthly. It's great. It's varied. Check it out. Basicfolk.com is where you can find all this information. Okay, let's get into our guest today. Grace Giverts, born and raised in South Florida, began writing and performing at age 11 when she got a guitar and learned to play off of YouTube videos. Grace is a survivor in many ways. She manages and confronts several chronic illnesses. She survived having her Berkeley scholarship rescinded due to a systematic error and lived through being struck by a city bus in 2015. The accident left her unable to play her instruments for several months. During that idle time, she reflected on how being a musician defines who she is. Her writing changed and became more open and honest in her songs about living with chronic illness. In her most recent single, Papa, she writes about the traumatic murder of her grandfather and how he lives on in grace. I first came across Grace working at Club Passim in the Boston area where she currently lives. Grace's visual appearance, sense of humor, and sparkling personality are undeniable. In addition to music, she's super crafty, and her reputation for cute outfits, cute earrings, which she sells on Etsy, and her cute apartment, which I've seen a lot of thanks to Zoom concerts and social media, proceeds her. She surrounds herself with her adorable pets that pop up frequently on her social media. One time, my mom even shared a video of Grace's bearded dragon baby pancake being cuddled by her peachy cat persimmon. Yes, I know most of her pets' names and have a Grace Giver t-shirt with a sweet baby pancake design on it. I'm a fan all around. Let's take a listen to Grace's most recent single, Papa, and then we'll get to our conversation with the delightful Grace Giverts on Basic Folk. Thank you so much for being on the podcast So thrilled Thank you for having me This is extremely exciting You were born and raised in Jupiter, Florida A beach town in southern Florida Go Hammerheads Indeed (laughs) You mean like the actual shark? There's a minor league baseball team I found out called the Hammerheads
1: Well, I should know that, shouldn't I? I grew up across the street from Roger Dean Stadium it's the first place I ever sang the National Anthem. Oh,
0: wow. So
1: <laughs> I I remember I went for the, I guess, audition for the National Anthem. And I was like, I'm going to be really edgy and I'm going to bring my guitar. And then I just started playing it. And I was like, this is this is ridiculous. So I just ended up just singing <laughs> it. But um, it was it was my only claim to baseball. Fame. Wow.
0: Well, what did you like about Jupiter? What did you like about your town growing up, and how do you think it's impacted you?
1: Yeah, I think that's, that's a, a, a packed question. <laughs> um, I think Jupiter was definitely an interesting place to grow up. I was homeschooled for a majority of my, like, elementary and middle school years because of my health. So um, it was it was very interesting to be in that community and not be kind of in school because it's such a small place that that's where everyone gets to know each other. Um, so I also felt a little isolated there too. Um, my family was probably in our immediate community, in our church, everywhere, we were the only mixed race family, like specifically black and white. Mm -hmm. So it it was very, very interesting. And I think definitely made me not realize until a later age that I had put so much into trying to fit into a white mold. So I think that's a huge thing that I've, I've recognized recently. Um, but I think my favorite thing about Jupiter, Florida, is Annie's Italian ice. And <laughs> <laughs> on the complete opposite, brighter note, <laughs> Annie's Italian ice. Um, but no, I think that that definitely formed me into the person I am without mm. me really recognizing that the disparity in in racial diversity. Mm was, was so prevalent.
0: Do you, so I don't know if you like to talk about specifically about like what chronic illnesses you've encountered over your life.
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't mind at all. I think there's, there's, there is a lot of them. So just kind of the, the primary ones, I have asthma and I was on um, steroids for like half, of my life um, kind of continuously. So my immune system is not <laughs> Um So there's that. I have 27 food allergies. I'm so
0: quirky. What's your favorite food allergy?
1: My favorite food allergy. It's probably bananas because I absolutely despise bananas. Mm. So I'm glad about mm. it. I'm not mad at all. But yeah, there's that I have polycystic ovary syndrome, so that's a lot of chronic pain that just mm. is consistent. So um, there's there's a lot more, but those are those are definitely the the big
0: three. What did um, your homeschool experience look like?
1: It was it was great. I think that my mom, um, who is the love of my life, she really gave me. And my sister, who was also homeschooled, she she gave us really the autonomy to learn at our speed and learn at our pace and learn at a level that we felt comfortable with. So for me, we get obviously our schoolwork, our curriculum for the year. I'm the kind of person who doesn't like to stop working when it comes to if you give me a pile of work to do, I want to just do it all and get it over with. So that was something that I when I went back to school in high school, I realized, I was like, wait, you're not just going to give me the entire curriculum. And I can't write six essays right now and just be done with it. Um, so that that was definitely, definitely something that I, I appreciated was being able to kind of mold being homeschooled mm-hmm. into into what I needed. I learned better that way. I, I think that I didn't realize how beneficial to my retention of information, but also my interest and my want uh, in learning new things was impacted by not having standardized testing. Mm. That, That, when I went to high school, I was so shocked at how much less motivation i had because everything i was learning was to a test mm. so i i think that really impacted me even now just how i how i like to learn things and how i i absorb information um i prefer not to do it because i have to <laughs> <laughs>
0: Where was music for you growing up, Um, musicians in your family, what was being played in your house, who was bringing you the stuff that was really resonating with you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So my mom, um, so I'll tell you the most beautiful love story of all time. Um, My (laughs) parents met working on cruise ships. My dad was a blackjack dealer and my mom was a cabaret singer. And so they (laughs) met on cruise ships and it's just so beautiful. And they've been together 30 years next year. So they my mom obviously is a musician. So I, I think that it's it's been in my life from from day one. My my mom went to college for music. Um, so there there has been a lot of, of just musical influence from her. There wasn't really any, I'm trying to think of even one um, specific like artist that was like, this is the only thing we're playing. This is the primary artist we're playing. We had so many different, different artists that, that were, were played in the household. So my dad listens to a lot of reggae. I'm going to I'm going to be honest to this day, I still haven't latched on to mm. it. It feels like the sound of reggae feels like home, but solely because it sounds like what I grew up with my dad, like blasting. Mm. So um, my mom, though, uh, she she definitely introduces to a lot of Whitney Houston, Deanne Warwick, um, Carol King, all all of the obviously powerhouse. Uh, vocalists. So um, I think that's where my my love for singing came in before anything else was she just exposed us to so many um, powerhouse vocalists. And I think that my discovery of of acoustic and folk music really came at really just me diving into the Internet as a 10 year old, 11 year old who was homeschooled and did all of her work (laughs) and was like, okay, I'm going to just scowl the internet (laughs) and so um I I'm thankful that I I was able to do that because that is not music that I grew up on Mm -hmm. so at least in my quote-unquote formative years so I think that that's really where where my influence are drawn from I think with the the vocalists that um that I was exposed to growing up I think that's definitely where a lot of my Love from for singing comes from, but I don't want to sound like like an asshole and be like I'm self made. <laughs> but I I, <laughs> I I I I stumbled across a lot of stuff, mm. um, and it was good because when I started to tell my dad, I was like, "Hey, Dad, have you heard of Simon and Garfunkel?" He was like, "Yeah, of course." And then he would he just showed me all this stuff, and I remember I was like 11 or 12, and I was like, "Why didn't you show me this before?" And he's like, I don't know. <laughs> So he had all he had the arsenal busy of slapping information the bass. He did not I no, seriously, I'm like, "Okay, well, um can we stop the steel drums and just show me the pedal steel? Come on." <laughs> but no, I I think that music's always been been something that uh has been ingrained in my family for sure.
0: So you're talking about scouring the internet um and you began writing and performing when you were 11 where you got a guitar and you learned mm-hmm. off YouTube? What made you want to start playing and writing? And what did it feel like first to like write a song, play a song? And how do you relate to that sensation now?
1: Yeah, I think that's a a beautiful question. I, um, so I used to be super embarrassed about this for the longest time. Oh, I can't wait to hear this. And now, now that it's like super trendy, I feel like I've been liberated the thing that made me want to learn how to play the guitar was Taylor Swift that is what was my first oh my gosh that looks so much fun because she had a sparkly guitar and you bet your ass I have an exact replica (laughs) of it and that was my first guitar um so I think that Taylor Swift was really a huge influence for me because she was young and and a human being. And I was like, wow, that looks really fun. And so that was definitely a a huge influence. I think with my songs, I I was having a hard time, like, really figuring out. And I still, to this day, have the, the same the same feeling of okay, well, how am I going to write a song and make it so that people can relate to it? And it's not just my obscure trauma. Like, how can I do that? Um, And I think that now as I'm older, and I've been writing songs for like 13, 14 years, I realize that my trauma obviously is person specific, but there's something that people can relate to in in everything like I I listen to songs and obviously they're not about the experience that I have or have had. Mm -hmm. uh, But that doesn't mean that I can't resonate with it. So I think accepting that and and being able to say, okay, well, I can't write 300 songs about Heartbreak and love and my friends and all of this stuff, because that's not applicable to me at this point in time. I think that now I've really accepted, like, you know, you don't have to do that in order to write a good song. And it was a very long winded answer (laughs) to your question. Uh, But yeah, no, Taylor Swift. I am so excited for tomorrow. Taylor's version of Red. Got my four-disc vinyl coming in the mail tomorrow. <laughs> you bet I'm going to be spinning it all day. But, yeah, no, I I think that she was a huge influence on me for sure.
0: This is um, something I've been thinking about. So I'm maybe, like, 15 years older than you and have... Uh, <laughs> I'm and I don't play music, but um, I'm really interested in like the oral tradition of like passing songs along to people through like jams and hangouts and music camps and stuff. And I was talking to a friend of mine recently, and he's like, well, like, I really did that through YouTube, you know, like learning all of these songs through YouTube. And I'm wondering, like, it seems like you're in that in that kind of like world where it's like, Mm-hmm. You're kind of at an advantage and you're kind of at a disadvantage in a couple of different ways. But what can you say about, like, musicians who learn to play music on YouTube? Have you come across any kind of common ground when encountering YouTube YouTubers, YouTube learners?
1: Yeah, I I unfortunately cannot say that I am a... Uh YouTube influencer and <laughs> uh, famous, famous, uh, in, no, I'm kidding. Um, but I I think that the beautiful thing about YouTube and ultimate guitar and all of those online um, resources that are free to people is it's so accessible because we we couldn't afford for me to have extensive lessons and, and learn all of these things. And I wouldn't have been able to be where I am and know the things I know if I wasn't able to take advantage of the kind souls who just put a camera in front of themselves and started playing guitar. And we're like, this is how you do it. Um, So I think that something that also comes along with that, though, like what, like you said, there's a lot of advantages, but also disadvantages that I have a lot of feelings of inadequacy Mm. when it comes to being a musician that wasn't classically trained or wasn't trained by a teacher that was like not on my computer. I don't know how to read music. So I think that's something that's that's universal uh, amongst a lot of people who are self-taught is that you can't read music. And I definitely have have run into some roadblocks with that. But um, the thing that I'm starting to realize now that I'm branching out into teaching some people how to play banjo and, and different things that i know a lot more than i realize and i'm way too hard on myself and i think that's a universal thing Mm. amongst people who are self-taught is that there's a lot of feelings of inadequacy a lot of feelings of i'm doing this wrong but then you're like wait no i'm doing it right why am i just because i taught myself how to do it doesn't mean that it's not Mm -hmm. correct um so i i think that's definitely a universal universal thing it's just the 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 sense of not only inadequacy, but also empowerment.
0: One of the wonderful attributes that you have is your sense of humor. You are hilarious and. Oh my God! You can riff really well. I can? Yeah. <laughs> totally. You know, okay, I I'll I set it. something up and you knock it right down. <laughs> so where was humor growing up for you? Like, and what kind of humor do you like best?
1: Well, my dad is British and my sister's British. So I think that just overarching theme of uh, this is all going to be very dark humor. <laughs> this is all going to be very um, off collar probably offensive. That's definitely a a huge impact. My dad's the funniest person I've ever met in my entire life. Like if I'm upset, I just call my dad and he makes me laugh. Like there is <laughs> there is nothing that I could have like gotten my leg amputated by like severed by just walking down the street and I call my dad and he still make me laugh. <laughs> he'd probably make a joke about me getting my leg cut off. Uh, so I um I definitely think that was a huge influence on me. I also um and this is something that I have realized in the past couple years too is that I use humor a lot to guard myself and to kind of protect myself and and but so that I can relate with other people because if I self deprecate right and I joke about all of my ailments and my disabilities and all of the things that I've been through then like we can all laugh about it because you don't get it but. You can laugh at it and I'll, I'll take that. And my my best friend said to me a couple weeks ago, I was texting her and she apparently just thought everything I was saying was just hilarious to her <laughs> that day. And she was like, do you want to know how I know you're not doing well? And I'm like, what? And she's like, you're so funny yes. today. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. Um, so I definitely think that um humor is a coping mechanism, but luckily it sounds like it has bled into the other areas of my life when I when yeah. I, <laughs> I am just having a normal conversation. I swear I'm fine. I swear. <laughs>
0: Um, you all you're also able to incorporate humor into your music. Um what has that evolution looked like? Was was it always easy for you?
1: I think that that was how I got into even being close to using metaphors, allegory, things like that in my music because there are so many jokes and I I love puns and I think that puns have allowed me to really explore the connection between different words and how one word could mean ten different things if you said it a different way. So I I think that that was the basis of my music. And now that I've been able to write for so long, I can I can write songs now that aren't funny. But um, I, I'm not I'm not weird Alberta Yankovic, but I definitely <laughs> I, I definitely think that um, it's it's been it was my gateway into being able to have, I guess, a higher level of. Imagination. That's the word I'm going to use. Imagination.
0: (laughs) So you started on guitar, and then you picked up the ukulele, and ultimately you went for the banjo. You got a banjo when you were 16, and it seems like your reasons for selecting and playing and sticking with the banjo have evolved.
1: Yes, absolutely. So I got a banjo on my 16th birthday and a Ruby Tuesdays. As one does. (laughs) And it was... As one does. How else would you get your first banjo? Do you get it anywhere else but a Ruby Tuesdays while at the salad bar? No, there's no other way. Um, But yeah, no, I, I loved the banjo and it was just so much fun. And it was one of those things where because I hadn't been exposed to folk music growing up and bluegrass and roots music growing up, that I really... And I think a lot of people are embarrassed to say this. And I think that I was embarrassed to say it for a long time because so many, quote unquote, good musicians are like, oh, my God, that's so bad. But one of the integral parts of me wanting to learn the banjo was Mumford and Sons. And as well as Mumford and Sons, also when Taylor Swift put out me and I was like, oh, my gosh, she's playing a banjo. So I think those were my first experiences with the banjo and it was really accessible and I really liked it. But as I started to play it and I started to look into different artists who play it and learn about the history of the banjo, I was like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I love this instrument because it holds so much weight and it feels so good to hold a banjo and play it as a black woman, knowing that I can shed light on the fact that folk music is black. It like it, it came from us. We did that. I mean, there are a lot of things in the world. We can probably say the exact same thing. But I, I think that as I continue to learn about the origins of the banjo and wonderful players of the banjo, that I really started to fall in love with it because of what it stood mm-hmm. for and and, and I mean, it's also like the best sound ever.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's the best sound ever. Can you talk about why it's an honor for you to play the banjo? I've heard you say that before.
1: Yeah, I think that there are so many people, right, that were not when the banjo was was like came into to America and when slaves were playing it, it was it had to be a secret. They couldn't. Play, the music was the only thing that they had that was um, theirs. And of course, it got appropriated. We're not shocked. But it was something that brought community and really kept their heads held high, even though they were being so oppressed and so um, abused. So I, I think that now that I'm able to, as, as a black woman, hold a banjo and play a banjo, to people and and people see someone playing the banjo who would have played the banjo originally. um, I think it allows me to really shed light on on the importance of knowing where your music comes from, Uh, because I think it's really easy to listen to music and you're just like, yeah, cool, like it. But it just it means a lot more once you figure out where it came from. And I think that you get a lot more appreciation for Artists who are kind of reclaiming their territory mm. when when you know that that information. Mm. So yeah.
0: Okay, I can't hardly believe this story about Berkeley. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you decided to pursue music, and you got accepted mm-hmm. at Berkeley in Boston. Um, you turn down a couple other places to go, and it actually ends up being a pretty sad situation. So in 2015, yeah, you're at school in Berkeley, and you find out that your scholarship had been sent as a systemic error. Mm-hmm. Does this sound familiar to you?
1: Oh, oh, trust me. It sounds very And
0: <laughs> you had to pay your full tuition or leave Berkeley, which, wow. Yeah. Um.
1: Okay, so... Spoiler alert, I didn't pay it. I think that's... I I didn't pay it. I jumped ship.
0: What do you want to say about that situation? And also, like, I'm interested in, like, what did it do with your relationship to music and to performing?
1: Yeah, um, I, I definitely... Have some choice words for Berkeley that I'll save for another day. <laughs> but I think that my relationship with music, uh, based off of that experience and living in Boston around all of these people that I know and knew who went to Berkeley and were doing the things that I thought like I needed to do that in order to be a musician, I think that sense of inadequacy was amplified moving here and staying here um, that I had being a self taught musician, but being here and seeing all of my peers getting different opportunities that I wasn't able to have because I wasn't a part of that that institution. I think a lot of the inadequacy, even to this day, is extremely, extremely heavy to carry. But I'm trying to every time I think that I have to remind myself that most of the musicians who are extremely successful who went to Berkeley did not stay. And if that is an indicator, because I was only able to stay a month, that means I'm going to blow up. That means I'm going to blow up. That was so, my first thought. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. It's like I'm going to blow up and uh, it's going to be good. That's how it's going to work. But um, yeah, no, there was definitely some some sense of... of just overarching defeat mm. that, that has come along with that. But I also on a smaller scale have to remind myself that my I'm doing a lot more with my music right now than a lot of my friends who graduated Berkeley and I don't hate music. That mm. is a sentiment that I get from a lot of my friends who went to Berkeley is they're like, I hate music <laughs> now because it's been in and out every day in my brain. So yeah, no, I think that that's how how it is.
0: All right, let's talk about the other crazy thing that happened to you. Which one? Uh, the when you got struck by an MBTA bus. Oh
1: my god, that time, yeah. I got hit by a bus. That was 2017.
0: Fun. You got hit by a bus. It was 2017. You were not able to play your instruments for several months, but during that time mm-hmm. you were able to reflect on, this is what you said, how much being a musician defines who I am. So how do you reflect on that time in terms of like meditating on your purpose in life and what you would do if it was taken away from you?
1: Oh, I had absolutely no purpose um, in my life those those months. Like absolutely the only thing I could focus on was the fact that I am in excruciating pain and no one seems to be able to do anything about it. I was misdiagnosed, so I went to physical therapy. So after I, I got my accident, I was misdiagnosed. Uh, the issues with my shoulder were misdiagnosed. And I went to physical therapy for the misdiagnosis and ended up making my shoulder worse. So um, my my physical therapist, though, she was incredible and was like, hey, you're g- not getting better, and I don't feel comfortable working on you anymore until you get a second opinion. And so I I went, I got my second opinion, and the doctor knew, like, right, he was like, yeah, it's your, it's your AC joint. I'm like, what? Like you, He was like, I wish you would have come here sooner because I would have told you then. I was like, great. I'm like, that's fantastic. But um, I, I don't think I had any time to stop and think what I would do without it. So the day before I got hit by the bus, I recorded my first EP. And then the next day I quit my job and I got hit by the bus 30 minutes later.
0: <laughs> <Ooh>.
1: <laughs> so, uh... I was like, wow, okay, fine. Maybe I shouldn't have quit my job. But yeah. So I I think that I just I really didn't have any time or capacity to think what I would do without it because I, I continued to do it until I couldn't. It got to I would say I I forced myself to play probably up until November until I literally couldn't lift up my arm. So I got hit in June mm-hmm. and I No, I got hit in July. Sorry. And I just pushed through. I played shows. I did all this Mm -hmm. stuff and just moseyed on until I physically
0: could not anymore. Um, What happens when you get hit by a city bus?
1: Absolutely nothing. (laughs) You don't get. Absolutely. So I um, like any person who gets hit by a bus tried to Get some compensation, sure. you know, because I think that's a valid thing when you get hit by a bus in Kenmore and you're just chilling uh, because the bus driver, quote unquote, didn't see you. Um, I think that is really, really a thing that, you know, you should get compensated for. But um, I I had two different lawyers. The first one ghosted me. So that was fun. Um, but the the second one, I remember. It was so nice. And he tried everything to get the the MBTA to take credit for what they did. But so here's a fun fact for all of you people who live in Boston, ride a bike. If you're in the bus bike lane, the bus has the right of way because it is carrying pedestrians. So I should have yielded to the bus and moved over the white line and been in the vehicle lane instead of the bike lane. And if that was the case, I would have gotten the money. But two nuns testified against me <laughs> and I was in the bike lane. <laughs> I was like, y'all do me dirty. Like the The lawyer was so nice. He was like, I'm gonna tell you something that's funny. Because everything else I tell you is not going to be funny. Mm. And he was like, but two nuns are the reason why you're oh not getting
0: <laughs> I can't believe it.
1: But yeah, but I'm thankful that I, I had a job at that point. I worked at Whole Foods that I, I was able to only come out of it with about $10,000 in debt, mm. which still is absolutely atrocious um, when something isn't your fault. But I didn't even get a T-pass. Wow. Like, I was like, y'all could at least give me a T pass. So I, I'm i just like, okay. Wow. So sometimes I'll feel guilty if, like, the the gates open. I, and this was – I did this yesterday. If the gates open, um, like, one of the things is broken at, at a T stop and it's like you can just walk through it. I'm like, oh, I shouldn't do that. But then I do it as an act of defiance. Oh, yeah. So I'm like, it's the least you can do
0: right, for me. Right, right, right. Um, I wouldn't stop you.
1: But, Yeah. Yeah, no. I, if, if any like MBTA person tried to stop me, I'd be like, let's talk. Let's have a conversation about what mm. happened. But yeah, I am thankful that I didn't die. Me too. So that's a, 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 a thing. Um but it definitely has has lived with me and continues to live with me and i I have p t s d from other trauma, but the most prevalent it kind of that just that just kind of mm-hmm. opened the can of worms mm-hmm. and and it continues to follow me like to this day sometimes i I can't even like leave my house uh and be on a street with cars so it is i think going to affect me for the rest of my life, and I just have to figure it out and, and and think, OK, well, at least now I can tell people to yield to buses like so that this doesn't happen to anybody else. But in Brighton and in, in Brighton, Alston area, there is a beautiful bike lane, bus bike lane on on Comm Ave mm-hmm. and there's room for both of us. And I just hope that the city of Boston does that everywhere or like Cambridge has a separated Bike path and bike mm-hmm. lane separated by cars, mm-hmm. like yep. parked
0: cars. That's uh, the best. Where
1: where cyclists are.
0: Uh I want to talk to you about your voice. It is super cool. Uh it sounds old and has this like unusual, like magical tone to it. How did you Thanks. discover your voice and what's your relationship like with your singing? Um I
1: thank you. First of all, second, I, I always have been singing like my entire life. And I think that growing up music and, and specifically singing was so important to me because it was something that I, I knew that I was good at. But it was also something that I was good at that didn't make me feel sick. And that was something that was so prolific to me that there was something that I could do that I was good at, that I really enjoyed and felt fulfilled by that didn't make me feel like I was fatigued or I was unable to do much after after exerting that energy. And, and I think that over in the years, it's really been something that has been an indicator also of like how well my asthma and my lungs are doing because it's like, okay, how much can I sing? And that's how I describe it to my doctors now. Mm. So it's like, oh I can only I can only do X, Y and Z. Um, and that kind of gives them a, a, an understanding of where my um, my lung capacity mm. is and I think it's an absolute miracle that I can sing the way that I do with the lungs that mm. I have. I don't. It doesn't make sense, mm-hmm. but I do it, and it makes me really happy. So I think that it's really important to to who I am as a mm. person. And yeah, I love to sing songs.
0: Something that I saw pop up a couple of times is your size. Uh, like, I'm small. Yeah, uh, in your <laughs> bio it says with a large voice packed into a tiny body. How do you feel about tininess and being small?
1: Oh my god, I love being short. It's great. I uh I fit into children's clothes. I fit into children's shoes, so all my shoes are half price, which is amazing. <laughs> um I think that I love the element of surprise. I'm 411, so I'm not I'm not like three feet. I'm four eleven. I'm actually four ten and three quarters, but the lady at the DMV who gave me my permit was super nice and just put four eleven. She rounded up and I was like, love you, thank you. <laughs> um but I, I, I mean, it, I don't know what it's like to be big. <laughs> <laughs> so my I mean, my family's my my mom, dad and sister are all like five, seven, my other sister, five, seven, five, eight. And my other sister is five, two. So we're we're not a tall family, but being on steroids for so much of my my Pre and post pubescent years um, definitely impacted the uh, the growth of my mm. body, so um, stunted my growth a little bit. But um, I know I, I like being short, and I also I just really like surprising people. One of my favorite things to do um, is is go to karaoke and just kind of go up there and because it's it's like if you come to my show you know who I am you probably know who what I sound like you you know what to expect but I love karaoke because you just show up <laughs> and you just go up there and you're all small and you look all timid and then you start seeing Whitney Houston and they're like what the hell is <laughs> happening and it's fun it's so fun um, but yeah no I don't I don't mind being small I fit I fit into compact spaces.
0: You have a line in your song Year of the Horse where you say, I wish I was as friendly as I was when I was 17. To me, you are very friendly, Grace. Thank you. So how do you feel about (laughs) you as a friendly person?
1: I was not a cynical person. I was never a cynical person until I think Berkeley. Mm to be completely frank, I think that was the thing that broke me and made me more of a realist of like, you know what, there's, there's a lot of shit. And it's just not, it's not all flowers and and good and everything happens for a reason. Like, no, there's a lot of just shit that is in this world that happens and continues to happen. And I think that I, I used to kind of brush past that. And I think a lot of that came from having such a traumatic upbringing mm-hmm. um, when it comes to my health, but also um, our like our financial situations, our, our housing instability. I, I think that I really just the, the the way to survive that was to be overly optimistic. Mm-hmm. But as I grew up, I was just kind of like, mm hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I still obviously like, thank you for saying I'm a friendly person. I agree. I think I'm a friendly person.
0: Um, your latest is your song, Papa, which is about the mm-hmm. murder of your grandfather. It's about your mother and how your grandfather lives on in you. And you make a few references to the phrase, kill them with kindness over the course of the song. Can you talk about the significance of using that phrase in that song?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that that is something that my mom does so beautifully. And she she is the most incredible human being I have ever met in my entire life. And I'm not saying that just because she's my mom. There are so many people I know who say the exact same thing that when they're upset, they just want to call my mom. Your mom specifically when they need to be My mom specifically. Mm -hmm. No, my best friend's always like, I need to call your mom because I just need a picture. (laughs) (laughs) And so I think that she she is honestly just the the most kind hearted and and truly there's no ulterior motive. There's no there's no there's no catch. She's just kind. And I can't imagine being as kind as my mother after dealing with my dad being brutally murdered like i don't know i do not know how she does what she does and how how she has just overcome it all and i think that that is something and she's told me this that my my grandpa instilled in her of just you know especially at she was she was born in the 60s so in baltimore maryland so mm-hmm. as a black woman growing up and and with black siblings and a black father and a black mother, my mom was just really taught to don't give them any reason to think you're less than, but not in a way that you're being nice conditionally. Mean it. Understand that ignorance exists and you can still be kind to people and seek to understand why they're the way they are. Without completely dismissing the situation. So I think that killing them with kindness, it, it, it really, it, it stems from that. But there's, there's a lot in me now that, I mean, obviously I never met my grandpa. Um, he died three months before I was born. Wow. And so my mom was pregnant with me, moving back to the United States from mm-hmm. England, right when her dad was killed. So... I am looking at it from like a bird's eye view, right? Like I wasn't in that situation. I didn't I didn't have the honor of knowing him. I have been through my own shit, right? And I'm looking at it and I'm just kind of fed up. I'm like, how can I be kind when all of this is happening? Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, I feel better when I'm being nice. There is no there is no need for me to harbor unkindness mm-hmm. and and treat people unkind just cuz i don't feel good. I feel better when i'm being nice because it is the energy that i'm creating and you fake it till you make it like i said. You just like it when i when i don't feel good, i do something nice for somebody because someone else feeling good makes me feel good and then i feel good and then it's great. Mm-hmm. But i think that's kind of the middle ground that i've i've reached from killing people with kindness. It's like, I'm gonna kill people with kindness, but I'm not gonna kill myself over it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: You are a black person who plays folk music, uh, Uh which is mostly (laughs) filled with white people. Um, Correct me if I am wrong about this, but you are often the only black person in the room or one of a very few when it comes to your music. Uh, Where are you in terms of like how you want to talk about being a black woman in this white genre? How has that changed over time? Like, do you want to be in the conversation? Do you not want to continuously do the labor and exert the energy that it takes?
1: Yeah, I think that's a great question. And, you know, firsthand, just like working together at PASIM and me being the only black person on staff up until a few months ago. There's a lot of heavy labor that I feel that is expected or I should say asked of me as a is often the only black person in the room that kind of pulls into where that cynicism comes comes in Mm -hmm. is like I shouldn't have to do this. So I don't want to do this. But then there's the other side of the coin where I say, okay, well, I shouldn't have to do this. But if I don't, who else is it going to impact Right. If I don't do it, who is it going to mm. impact? So or I should say, who is it not going to impact? So I think that that was something that was so hard for me last year during the summer and, and during all of the the protests and, and marches that everyone. I feel like so many people in our folk community were looking at me and looking at other black artists who have been trying so hard to break the mold and, and be successful in this genre and kind of were just like, okay, now we're listening. Like, tell us, tell. And I was just like, I am so traumatized. That I have nothing to say. Like I have absolutely nothing to say. So when I put out Papa, it was just kind of like, okay, this is what you wanted. This is what I needed. But I don't, I don't have time to, to cater to your white guilt. Like I really don't have time, energy or space to do that. um So I think now that I've, I've kind of been experiencing it more often where people are listening to me. I think I, I, I feel more comfortable and more apt to speak to the challenges and, and speak up and talk to, to people about how it has impacted me as a musician, but also as a person. But just imagine how jarring it is to be in a community, right? that you love, that you, you enjoy. And you always feel a couple steps behind because of who you are. And you always feel like you have to prove yourself a little bit more because of who you Mm -hmm. are. And then one day there's a snap of the finger and everyone gives a shit. Think of how overwhelming and jarring that is, that everyone just expects you to have something to say after a day because it's trendy now. Um... Because you put hashtag Black Lives Matter in your uh, in your Instagram post and now my life and my folk music matters. But it didn't matter for the past 24 years. And I'm just like, wait, 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 wait. I you'd expect me to have something to say, but I haven't even had time to prepare because I didn't think anyone was gonna listen mm-hmm. when I was like, wait a minute, you didn't care before. Like I I didn't have time to prepare. It's like a pop quiz. Mm-hmm. It's like I didn't have I didn't have time to prepare for you caring. And now it's really hard because it's like, kind of moves back to that cynical thing is I don't want to be cynical. And, and as things and people reach out to me, and they're like, hey, we want to include you in this, we want to do this. I'm like, okay, but am I the div- diversity hire? Am I the diversity on the bill? Like, it's hard not to feel cynical about that. But I just have to sit here and be thankful that if even if I am being put on something as a little spice or the obligatory, OK, we have a black name on the bill now, um, so we look good. At least I am able to be there. And if I feel like that is the case, call it out hmm. and be like, hey, do you want me here because I'm talented or because I'm black? Because I'm both. But which one are you picking? So I, I think it's really hard to not fall into that trap of just being cynical about it now where it's like all these opportunities are falling into my lap now. And I'm like, if this were two years ago, this wouldn't be happening. And it's like I, 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 I want to attribute it to more people listening to my music and more people being able to to access it and, and, and just realize, okay, well, I like this music and not feel like there's this little pit in my stomach that's saying, oh, you know, they're only doing that because like, Black Lives Matter now, right? Like, you know that's why they do. So it's it's trying to defeat that little voice in my head that's making it feel like things are
0: insincere. Mm-hmm. Um, last July of twenty twenty, um, you did a video with the Boston Museum of Fine Arts <clears throat> called "Sound Bites," where you played three songs chosen in response to the exhibition "Women Take the Floor," which was really cool. You did a great mm-hmm. job. Um. And I wanted to talk about your pairing um, of your song, The Light, with the piece Trans Liberation, Building a Movement, by Andrea Bowers, which is, I think, a photograph of Mm -hmm. a black trans woman named Cece McDonald as an angel. Um, Mm -hmm. I loved the choice and what you said. I'm constantly inspired by the perseverance of the black trans community and we need to show up for them. Um, and I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about how you align yourself with the LGBTQ community.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that I I have so many friends and so many um, family members who identify uh, as LGBTQ. And I think that because of that and because I um, am often put on bills where there's... Um, so many amazing queer artists and I think that I have the the honor of of being able to understand and kind of hear their stories and I think that with the communities that I fall into um, there's a lot of overlap sometimes which is great because they're shared experiences and there's shared understanding and I fit. Every other minority except LGBT, but um, I, I think that it's it's just important to listen to people and as an oppressed person in so many different marginalized communities, I know what it's like. I don't know that experience. I don't know their experience, but knowing the people that I love and hearing their experiences just has made me a lot more empathetic and and I think just a better mm. friend. And, and a better advocate for people who don't experience things that I do, because I am, I am a part of so many minorities that it's like almost comical that I don't have to grasp at straws to understand mm-hmm. uh, like, okay, what's it like to be disabled? What's it like to be black? What's it like to be a woman? Like there's all these things that what's it like to be, be half Jewish. Like what are all of these minorities that I just kind of put in, into me? And so it's, it's good to be able to hear perspectives of other people and, and um make sure that people are showing up for them mm-hmm. because I know what it's like not to feel like you've been shown mm-hmm. up for and not represented.
0: So Okay, so you have a very like cute and pleasant aesthetic. Um we have seen the inside of your apartment thanks to many live streams during COVID. Um, You have wonderful things up on your walls right now. I can see some instruments in the background. There's a map of the world. There's wonderful lighting. There's beautiful plants, like everything here. Like I look at it and I feel very calm and I feel very good. Yay. Um, You also have cute furniture, adorable animals. Um, How did you develop that cute aesthetic? And will you come and um, decorate my home?
1: I'll come and decorate your home. One hundred and fifty percent would be more than happy to do that. I think that I don't know. I don't. I don't know. It's just who I. I just like things. I'm a Taurus, so I just like prime comfort, and <laughs> I like thi- I like things, and I I think that I I put a lot of work and energy into making my space feel safe because I've been homeless three mm-hmm. times. And I think that I accumulate a lot of things, but I also keep things for a very long Mm -hmm. time because they feel like home. And and I think that making sure that my my space is is comforting and I can open my eyes from a night terror or something like a flashback, anything that I can open my eyes and it's like, okay, I'm in a safe space. And I did this. I pay this rent. I do this um is, is really important to me. So that's why I have six pets and uh, a <laughs> hundred and like twenty plants and I just it, it, it makes me feel good to know that it's mine. I love it.
0: Are you ready for the lightning round? Oh my God.
1: <sighs> I I thought I was but now I'm not okay, okay let's go.
0: First song you learned on the guitar.
1: Oh my God, what was it? Oh my god, no, 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 I know It was uh, Meet You There by Busted
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to be able to get through this lightning round Forget it <laughs> You're yeah, not going to like it's my answer Okay, I've been, I've been waiting to ask this question for about an hour okay. um, What is your karaoke song? My karaoke song is The Climb by Miley Cyrus oh, wow. um, Okay, dogs or cats or something else? Ah, uh, cats, they're my babies. First celebrity crush. Matthew Gray Goobler.
1: Still my celebrity Who is crush. That? Love that man. He's uh Spencer Reed from Criminal Minds.
0: Oh. I'll have to Google him.
1: <laughs> I think because I I love him so much and like he's very much so my type. My friends joke, they're like, Are you sure you're not a lesbian? And I'm like, Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure.
0: Mine was. Devin Sawa but. and I definitely am a lesbian. <laughs> the guy from Ca- the guy who is Casper in. Um, okay, uh, who is the nicest musician you've ever met?
1: Lucy Dacus.
0: First album you bought with your own money.
1: What is the? This is gonna be ridiculous. Whatever the Outcast album is that has. Uh, <laughs> <with> your face. <laughs> whatever the Outcast um, album that has. Stankonia. Hate on it. Yeah, that one. I was like eight years <laughs> old. That's appropriate,
0: <laughs> though. Um, first concert.
1: My first concert was. Oh my god, what was my first concert? I don't know. Like I think the the most memorable first concert I had that I was like, oh my god, this is my reason to live was the Main when I was like nine. It was the Main All Time Low and Mayday Parade and every Avenue emo bands. I can't. Oh, they're they're pop punk, baby.
0: Oh, that was my second guess. Yes. All right, Grace. But they make me email. This is the last question. Oh, God. Okay. Where is the most beautiful place you've ever visited?
1: I think either Multnomah Falls in Oregon, or I just really loved walking the streets of Amsterdam. Like, it's just so quaint. So in, if you're thinking of, like, a, uh, a place that has buildings and things, like, say Amsterdam, but if you're thinking the great wilderness the great outdoors I think Multnomah Falls I
0: love sure. I love two answers to that question we'll accept that
1: sorry I never have I don't we'll have one that. answer to anything
0: I'm sorry thank you, you just set off we Be just set off night. my Alexa it's very excited alright Grace we did it that was it thank you so much yay this episode of Basic Folk was produced by John Nungesser Alex Stanton composes our music You can find Basic Folk wherever you get podcasts on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. You can search Basic Folk on the SiriusXM app, our website, basicfolk.com, or wherever you get podcasts. All right. Thanks for listening to the entire episode. You're so great. Basically, you're the best. Okay. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.